everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today on episode number 236 of the Real Life Runners podcast. Today we're talking all about running shoes. How do you know if you're in the right shoe? What can the wrong shoe do? How do you make running actually feel a lot better if you're in the right shoe? Today we're talking about all the details to help you become an informed and educated consumer of running shoes. All right, it's time to talk all about running shoes. Kevin is our resident running shoe expert here at Real Life Runners. Something like that. You, I mean, you've been working in running shoe stores forever. Well, I shouldn't say you have been because you don't anymore, but you did work in a lot of running shoes throughout your life. Right. I've been around running shoes running for... Running shoe stores. <laughs> like, I've been around running shoes for over 25 years. Like, selling running shoes was one of my first, like, actual jobs beyond, like, babysitting my neighbors. Mm-hmm. Like, it was the first gig that I had. And um, I've sold shoes at various stores across the country, and each store had a kind of different feel to it of, you know, what the clientele was, who the general customer was that was coming in and what were they going for and what the the approach of the store was. It was always interesting. Yeah. And, you know, the way we want to start this episode is letting you know that running shoes are important, but they are not as important as some people make them out to be. Like they're for sure important. If you are in the wrong shoe, that can put you at a higher risk for injury. And if you're in the right shoe, it can make running feel so much better. But there's a lot of little nuances here that that you know, may or may not be important to some people. So basically today we want to kind of give you an overview about the world of running shoes and help you become a more educated consumer, help you understand what all of these different terms mean so that when you go to the running store, you know what to ask them, you know what the heck they're talking about, you know, um, and essentially if you find a good running shoe that you like and that feels really good on your foot then that's just going to make running so much more enjoyable it's going to make you want to do it more and isn't that what we all want well yeah and that brings us to a really good point here is if you have already found a shoe that feels really good for you and now you're seeing commercials and you're getting advertisements there's millions of dollars being pumped in the advertising for shoes Mm -hmm. of like oh yeah your shoe's great but have you considered this shoe and you get to thinking that my shoe's good but is it good enough is this actually the perfect shoe for me suggesting that there is in fact like a perfect shoe out there right and there's clearly not a perfect shoe you know and i know from my years in physical therapy that like people would come in asking about running shoes all the time and I can help with some basics like at that time before I really got into the world of running and coaching and all the things that I know now back then I could basically watch someone run I could determine what kind of gait they have like how their foot is hitting the ground and if they are you know have a neutral foot strike or if, if they tend to over pronate or if they're supinated I can help them with that and kind of guiding them towards the right category of shoes but the nuance and the detail and the differences between the brands and those kinds of things I always told my my um, patients at the time that's out of my scope of practice I can't tell you exactly which running shoe is best for you and quite honestly even now with all of the knowledge that I have about running shoes and runners and all of that I still don't feel like I am the best qualified to tell someone, you know, one of our athletes, what the best shoe is for them. Because one of the spoiler alerts that I'm going to give you right now is you have to find a shoe that actually feels good on your foot. I mean, for years, I would work at the store and the person would come in and they'd be like, I just want the best shoe. 
like, well, oh, sorry, that's that's this one. Like, uh, we're out of stock of, of the best shoe, but you might want to try this one. It's the second best. If there was a best shoe, we wouldn't have the wall of, like, 30 different shoes on there for the different options because there would just be the best shoe. We'd stock that shoe in all the different sizes, and then we'd be good. Wouldn't that be nice? But the problem is a lot of times people equate the best shoe with the most expensive shoe, and that is not necessarily true either. Right. So I had people that come in that they – when I was working at a, one particular running shoe store, they would walk in. They wouldn't even ask anything about the shoes. They simply would walk in and say, what is your most expensive running shoe? Was that the one in Miami? Yes, it was. <laughs> Could you tell? They said, what is your most expensive running shoe? I, I want it in my size. And then they would hand you their Black American Express. And we were told when we worked at that store that if they walk in and they want the most expensive running shoe, that you can say, are you sure? It might not feel the best. And they say, if they responded, no, I would like the most expensive shoe, then you just went and got it for them. Like, and that's how the shoe store worked yeah. because they knew the clientele they were working with. There were other stores that I worked in that the person walked in and they said the best and to that person it might mean the prettiest. And they were looking for something that was not necessarily going to take a huge amount of wear and tear, but it needed to look good. It needed to match their running outfits. And we were okay with that also. Mm-hmm. That was the best for that particular person. I've yeah. worked at other stores where the best was the most injury proof. Right. And then you worked in the one store where if someone asked if they had any different color, he would throw them out of the store. Well, sometimes <laughs> he would point out that color doesn't actually matter. And he, there were people that were like, well, this one feels really good, but this one looks better. And he would he would look at me as I was still like young and, and very much the assistant. He'd be like, box up the one that looks pretty. I don't want to see it out here anymore. Like, because that was not an option. Like, if the one felt better, <laughs> then you could, you were not allowed to choose the other one because it was prettier. It just didn't make sense to the guy. Right. Like he'd been running for 30 to 40 years at that point in time. Mm-hmm. He'd run literally over 100 marathons. And so getting a shoe based off of how it looked made no sense to him. Right, exactly. So the best shoe for one person may or may not be the best shoe for someone else. And this is, you know, we talk about this all the time when it comes to um, just training and figuring out how to train copying someone else and buying, you know, doing something that someone else is doing the same workouts, the same mileage, the same training plan is not a good idea just because they're good at running. Maybe if you just did the same thing, you'd be good at running too. Not a good idea. Same thing goes with shoes. Okay. Just because somebody else runs in a pair of shoes and they love them does not mean that they're going to be what's best for you. This also kind of opens up to the bigger shoe industry and how it sort of evolved over the last like 20, ish years when I first started selling running shoes there were really like the big shoe brands and there were not a lot of the smaller things most running shoes pretty much looked the same they had a different brand on the side of them but they were very very similar from one brand to the next to the next because everyone was just essentially copying each other Mm -hmm. there was not a lot of like crazy innovation going on and if you get like a smaller player to come in all of the big brands were big enough that they should just push them out of the way. Like they're, they couldn't get into any of the specialty running stores because your Nikes, your Asics, all your big, big brands would just be like, no, 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 just don't let them in. Right. 
now shoot you've got social media people are founding entire shoe companies on social media campaigns Mm -hmm. and then some of the bigger companies are like actually that's a quality shoe maybe we should look into their technology and figure out what's going on there yeah and then the bigger shoe companies buy out those little small companies (laughs) but it's led to a whole lot of innovation over the last 20 years of not necessarily crazy new additions we'll talk about those briefly about big advances that have, have come over time here but Really, running shoes are kind of like a pendulum that swings back and forth in sort of what's popular at the time. It's, totally. It's kind of like fashion, but there's there's some like running shoe aspects to it as well. Yeah, I think that's important for us to get into a very, very brief history lesson on running shoes. Very brief, okay? So that we can help you guys understand. I feel like this is how the diet industry is too, right? It kind of totally. swings, right? It's like a pendulum where right now we're in the phase of low-carb, um, low high-fat, but like back in the 90s, we were in high-carb, low-fat. Everything was low-fat, low-fat, no-fat, fat-free, you know, all the things. And now we've swung over to where everything is like high fat, low carb, no carb, those kinds of things make everything out of cauliflower and you're going to be healthy. So, but it's literally this pendulum swing. And so we're actually, I've I've already kind of started to see it shift back over. (laughs) You like my cauliflower? Make everything out of cauliflower. Running shoes out of cauliflower. I'd like some rice. How about cauliflower rice? I'd like pizza dough. How about cauliflower pizza dough? Why is everything made out of cauliflower? I don't know. But one of my favorite memes that I've seen is honey, if pizza, if cauliflower can become pizza, you can become anything you want. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one. But anyway, um, so just like the diet industry is kind of shifts back and forth. Same with the running shoes. You know, with running shoes, when they first started out, they were basically just a hard plate and a leather upper. Right. I mean, essentially you wanted to put something hard enough underneath your foot so that when you went out and ran, if you stepped on a rock, you weren't bleeding from it. Mm -hmm. And then you put some sort of material over the top of it so that thing underneath was staying attached to you. It was not much more than like sandals. It just had like an actual solid over the top so that your foot stayed clean, dirt didn't get in, you weren't stepping on rocks. That was the design. The running boom of the 70s, because we're doing a super brief... Super brief. The running boom of the 70s swung things the other direction. We're like, no, 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 cushioning is the answer. Because suddenly you have millions of new runners out there, which then increased a large amount of people who were running who were drastic heel strikers who had never run before. And so they're all landing really hard on their heels and they were getting hurt. And so the running industry is like, we can fix this. We'll put a massive cushion underneath your heel. So that led to big cushioning shoes of the 70s. Right. And then what happened then was, you know, a lot of times when um, when you take impact off of one area of the body it simply moves it to another area of the body so they were increasing the cushion to kind of take the strain off the calf muscles but that ended up leading to more knee injuries and when more knee injuries started happening people are like oh we should go back to the way that we were meant to run because the problem with all of the heel cushioning is that it leads people to do more heel striking, which then puts more pressure on the knees. So what you need is a minimalistic shoe. And there was a big push in the early 2000s um, towards more minimalistic shoes. And a lot of that was based on a book that had, had come out at the time called Born to Run, where Christopher McDougall basically followed this ancient Mexican tribe that just like runs all day. And essentially, like what we were saying, running sandals, a lot of it was just essentially a uh, piece of leather under your foot so that you don't get sliced up by the rocks in the mountains. I mean, that was all that it was. The only yeah. reason that it wasn't barefoot was if it was going to be rocky terrain. Otherwise, yeah. it would be barefoot. Otherwise, it would be barefoot, right. And so there was a huge push toward barefoot running or minimalistic shoes. And that 
you know, like I said, it was probably like around, what was that, 2009? The book came out in 09. Okay, so then the early 2010s, then yes. there was a big push for this. So about a decade ago, there was a big swing towards that uh, barefoot and minimalistic running. Right, but in between that time, you had maximal, and then it kind of went back toward this moderate thing where people were like, well, it can't be super cushioned because then my knees get hurt. And I swear that's where the whole running causes pain to your knees came from because you had running boom all these runners then the shoe industry threw maximum cushioning shoes at them it took the strain from their calves and put it onto their knees and boom running causes injuries mm. running causes pain to your knees it does not okay i'm here <laughs> to tell you i've read i've read so many research studies on this runners do not have an increased incident of arthritis they actually have decreased incidence of arthritis as compared to non-runners and there is no direct link that shows that running is bad for your knees running is actually all the evidence out there shows that running is actually good for your knees, actually has a protective effect on your knees. Thank you, doctor. Yeah, that was my little PSA for the day. I like that. I like the, the doctor official voice on that one, too. Yeah. It was really nice. The more you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> and now we're swinging back the other direction. Let's throw a whole lot of cushion at shoes right now. This, the pendulum started swinging away from, I'm going to have no shoe underneath me. The big swing came in uh, 2016. I would say is the argue of the the very beginning, let's put a whole lot of foam because at the Olympic marathon in 2016, all three runners were wearing the exact same shoe that was at this point, not even a named shoe. It was a Nike prototype shoe Mm -hmm. that became the Nike Vaporfly 4.4% because Nike had essentially created a new foam that was able to be springier than previous foams. And I've heard so many his, like really funny people like writing about, oh, it's, the new foam is foamier than the last foam. But <laughs> what they, they figured out was part of the issue of the thick foam shoes from like the 70s and 80s was, besides the fact that it, it messed with your running gait slightly, they were also really heavy because you had to put all this foam in there. And so it was just a heavy shoe. They've made a foam that springs back to life better and is actually substantially lighter. So they can put this huge pad of foam underneath you so it's a nice soft landing, but it's not a big giant clunky shoe that feels like a boot that you're trying to haul around. Right, and then there's now like all of the carbon plated shoes out there, which just takes it to a whole nother level. Right, which we'll talk about a little bit when we get to carbon plating, but okay. I don't, I don't want to get into that too we're not, quickly. We're not there. getting there yet. Okay, so. So that's our little brief history lesson for you. So ultimately, let's take this back to what do we need to know, okay? What do you need to know to buy shoes? Number one, we want to talk about what happens when your foot hits the ground, okay? There is a term called pronation, and a lot of people think it's like a dirty word, you know, that you, like, we have to correct pronation. And there was a big push for this, like, in, what did you say, the 90s? Correcting pronation, yes. There's like, a push in the 90s, yeah. but correcting pronation is the funniest concept ever. Right, because you don't need to correct pronation. We all do it. This is the normal way that our foot needs to move. This is exactly what we're supposed to do, okay? It is not good or bad. Essentially, in gait, now this is walking and running, your foot hits the ground. You te- typically hit the ground near your heel. Some people tend to hit it like more in the midfoot area, but essentially you land on the ground with your heel. You kind of 
move towards like the outside of your foot hits the ground and then you basically roll over onto the inside of your foot where your arch collapses a little bit you roll more towards the ball of your foot and then you push off of your big toe that is normal pronation that is what's supposed to happen okay there is the main arch of your foot is called is called the longitudinal arch and when you walk that arch does help to support your foot and the rest of your body but it is supposed to actually collapse a little bit it's made out of cartilage it's not a stiff bony structure so it's supposed to collapse you're supposed to roll from the outside of your foot onto the inside of your foot and the ball of your foot okay that is all normal and what happens is actually a lot of times people try to overcorrect and say oh you're not supposed to pronate at all and that leads to a lot of problems now understand that pronation is normal. We're all supposed to have this, but there are some people that what are, what's called overpronate. Now, there is some debate out there of whether or not overpronation is a thing. That's one of the things I've been seeing lately is like, you know, is this actually overpronation or is it just something else like hip weakness? I would argue that it's probably both, okay? A lot of times people that tend to overpronate. There are other problems up the chain. There are muscle weaknesses, especially in the hips, because if you have weakness in your hips and your hip drops when you land, which means your knee kind of crashes in and your foot kind of overpronates to try to compensate, it's like the chicken or the egg, right? This is kind of the discussion that we're having here. Are, are you overpronating, which is causing your hip to drop and cause these problems up the chain, or is your hip dropping first and which is causing problems down the chain, right? It's a chicken and egg thing. Essentially, we want to try to correct both areas. Right. This is the idea of, well, it, I don't necessarily want to name it overpronation because then someone might feel bad that they've they've got a, a condition known as overpronation. So maybe we can just strengthen away from it and then everybody will just run with a neutral foot strike. And that's not really how it necessarily works. Sure. Could you lessen the amount that your foot rolls towards the inside by strengthening your hips and your glutes and things like that? I think so. And you should. You should do this. All runners should be doing hip strength strengthening exercises. But the the issue with it is that strengthening takes time, right? It takes time for you to actually build strength in your hip muscles. So during that time, you might need a little extra support so that you're not putting even more strain. So as you strengthen, you can add, you know, put a little bit more support to help with the pronation aspect that might make the knee and the hip feel better until you get those muscles a little bit stronger. And then maybe you need to decrease the the levels of stability as well. Right. It also depends on like how far you're going for a run. Like if you're regularly at 20 to 30 minutes, you might not finish your run at like extreme levels of fatigue. Whereas if you're out there for three or four hours and you're like, oh, I had a totally neutral foot strike when I took out. Okay. Well, by by hour three, your perfectly neutral foot strike may have gained a little bit of overpronation towards it because all of the muscles are getting tired and your foot's falling the muscles in your feet are maybe not quite as stable and holding the arch as strong as it was at the beginning the muscles in your hips might not be holding yourself as upright as it was your knees are falling a little bit more towards the inside your hip is dropping all sorts of things can happen as you were out there for hour upon hour so there's lots of issues right and i mean the important thing to remember with all of this is that everything is connected right so um going back to some of these basic terms okay there's over pronation and then there's also super Supination. Supination is when you tend to ride on the outside of your foot. You tend to have a more rigid arch and you kind of wear out the outside of the foot. You tend to push off more on like the three little toes versus the big toe. 
Right. Like you, you might be able to feel your big toe as, as you run on this one, but you almost take off with no weight on your big toe. Mm-hmm. If you overpronate, you, you may know this because you're gaining like a substantial callus on the inside of your big toe, because instead of taking off like over the top of your foot, you're literally taking off on the inside. So you're rubbing on the inside of your big toe as you take off. You can often uh, recognize overpronators if you come up behind someone running because they're rolling off on the inside so much that to balance their foot, it flicks strong to the outside. That's an, often a characteristic of overpronators because the hips weak, the knees crashing, and then to balance that out, the foot flicks towards the outside. Right. So there's a lot of different ways you can look at this, but essentially, if you are not quite sure what you do, have someone watch you run. Okay. Mm-hmm. Go see a physical therapist. Go to your local specialty running shoe store and ask them to watch you run and see what actually, you know, what your body's actually doing. Okay. Because most of us are somewhere in the middle. You know, a lot of us, um, I think if you're not sure, start with a neutral shoe. I think that's a really good place to start for most people, especially if you are following a good training plan, especially if you're doing strengthening exercises, because a lot of times, um, neutral shoe is going to be going to allow your body to have its more natural foot strike, right? Then from there you can determine, okay, do I need some stability? Stability shoes are, are typically what they do is they help to correct over pronation with external means. Essentially they are putting, um, posting in the shoe, plastic wedges, foams, air pockets, all sorts of different tricks that um, these shoe manufacturers have nowadays to essentially help support that arch from crashing down too soon. Right. And when you go from one brand to the next to the next, exactly how they do it changes, which is why if it determines that you actually should go into a stability shoe, maybe you do overpronate, maybe you join me in the overpronating world, then you need something that's going to help guide your foot to stay a little bit more neutral and where that, that posting on the inside known as medial posting, how that works differs from one brand to the other. Mine, the, the shoe that I've been running in for a while, that posting stops fairly far back on the heel. There are other shoe companies that it rides all the way through, like through the entire arch of your foot. There's some that rides all the way through up to the big toe. Mm-hmm. Like it really depends on the company and the level of stability that that particular shoe is designed to have. So you, you want one just because you're in a stability shoe and you're like, ooh, that feels like too much, you might still be able to go into a stability shoe that just has less stability. If you're in a neutral shoe and you're like, ooh, I feel like I need a lot more than this, you might be able to find a mild stability shoe or a neutral shoe that is just sort of a stiffer-built stability shoe or a stiffer-built neutral shoe. It's a whole spectrum. There's not like stability and neutral and that's it. There's like a wall between them. It's it's a whole range of shoes. Yeah, that's a very good point, you know. And so kind of what you want to take away from this is try to run in the least amount of stability that you need. Yes. You know, is really the the thing because you don't want to be overcorrecting things. Like so if you can run in a neutral shoe, run in a neutral shoe. If you need a little bit of stability, do a little bit of stability. Don't go into those maximum stability shoes, right? Try try running in the least amount of stability for your body that still feels good. And this like I said, may change depending on if you're getting stronger, okay? Hip exercises, glute strengthening exercises can also change how much you're pronating, right? So 
as your strength increases, you might need to decrease the levels of stability in your shoe. That's a really, really good thing, right? Um, And then on the other hand, if you are running longer than you ever have before and your muscles are fatiguing, you might be pronating more on a 20 mile run than you are on a five mile run. So you might need different levels of stability based on how far you're running and how much fatigue is happening in the muscles. All right. So I think that covers kind of the, the pronation. Pronation's not bad over or under, not necessarily bad. They might be some things that need some guidance to sort of bring your strike into a more neutral thing. But right. I think you summarize that great of you need as little stability as is necessary. Yeah. As it's, it still feels good in your body. Excellent. All right. So one of the other things, big term out there right now is the concept of a heel drop. I don't think this dun, term dun, used to dun. be like a big term years ago. This is a big push now of, oh, I don't want a huge heel drop, which is the difference in the amount of foam under your heel versus the amount of foam under your toe. So sometimes it's called the heel toe drop. Sometimes people want to be super cool and they just call it the drop of the shoe, you know, just shorten it as much as possible. So one of the things that this really does Uh, depending on how big or small the drop is from heel to toe is it changes where most of the impact forces hit your body, Mm -hmm. right? So if you have a particularly low heel drop, something less than eight millimeters, usually the people that are like, no, 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 if it's low, it needs to be at least four or fewer. I've seen that, that on a website somewhere. (laughs) It sounded very condescending. Um, these are going to put more emphasis on using your calf muscles. It may strain on the Achilles. If you have a higher heel drop, it's going to move some of that impact away from the calves. It's going to move it up towards the knees and the muscles around the knees. Exactly. And so this is important to know based on your body and based on your injury history or those sensitive areas that you might have in your body, right? Like maybe you're starting to run in your 40s and 50s, but when you were in your teens and your 20s, you had a very significant knee injury from playing football or soccer or something like that, right? So you know that you kind of already have this area of weakness in the knees. Maybe you would want to try something with a little bit of a lower heel drop that might put more strain on the calf or Achilles, but you can strengthen those areas. Again, you should be strengthening all areas, no matter what, but just understanding that the heel drop that you choose in your shoe can shift where those forces are placed in the body is just, I think, very powerful knowledge to have. Right, but it doesn't eliminate the forces on your body. It just kind of shifts where those particular forces land. Exactly. And the biggest thing that we want to point out here when it comes to heel drop is that you don't want to make drastic changes. Okay, so say you have heard the benefits of zero drop shoes or the benefit of low heel drop shoes, and you want to see how that feels on your body. Fantastic. Great. Don't do, don't just go from like a shoe that has like a 10 millimeter or 12 millimeter heel drop to a four or to a zero without, you know, any warning. You want to make sure that you're transitioning a little bit at a time so your body can actually adjust and, and, and make those necessary adaptations to accommodate that lower heel drop. Yeah. Essentially before you're ready to get a new pair of running shoes, you would get a new pair of running shoes and kind of bring it into the rotation. Yeah. It also highlights the benefit of having a variety of different running shoes. So you could have shoes that have a higher heel drop, that have a moderate, that have a very low heel drop. Mm-hmm. And by 
rotating through various shoes, you would never essentially have super overuse of any of the muscles. Right, because then you're essentially just shifting the forces from one area to another on different runs. Now, again, your body physiology definitely matters here, right? Because something, so someone like me, I tend to have just very tight calf muscles. Like I just have tight calves. I have limited dorsiflexion in my ankle, which means like when I bring my toes up towards my head, like I'm limited in that direction, which is all, it's all kind of working together here. Right. And so for me, um, my favorite running shoe has a 10 millimeter heel drop. I tried switching over to an eight, which is not a big deal, but I totally felt the difference between my (laughs) 10 and the eight on where those forces were being placed in my body, just because of the tightness that I have in, you know, my ankle and my calves. Right. So my particular running shoe is I think somewhere around like a 12, Mm -hmm. but my racing shoes have like an eight millimeter drop. And so I can race in them over fairly short distances, but every time I've gone for the full marathon distance in my racing shoes, my calves have been completely lit up towards the end of the run, which I I was like, okay, I just need to do more calf strengthening, more calf strengthening. And finally I was like, hey, why don't you realize that there's a big difference between the shoes that you do all of your running in and the shoes that you've decided to race in? Maybe that's (laughs) causing an issue. Right. And you know, I like what you point out there because it's true, right? Can you run in a shoe with a lower heel drop or a higher heel drop? Yes, totally. Is it worth it to you to be able to have to do all of that work, right? Because if I were to change from my higher heel drop, I'm actually considered a moderate heel drop, like eight to 10 is moderate. But like if I were to go into a shoe with a lower heel drop, I could probably transition myself, but that would require so much calf stretching on my part. Like, do I want to spend so much time like massaging my calves and stretching my calves and making sure that I have that mobility? Like one would argue that like, I should be doing that anyway. You should try to get your ankle, you know, blah, 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 blah. But like, okay. I I mean, or I can just wear shoes that like feel better in my body that work for you yeah that work like if you've already found the shoe that works for you why are you going to force yourself into another shoe because you saw an ad on instagram because somebody said it was better right i saw an ad (laughs) that told me that this is the most amazing shoe look at this new technology that we've got put the new shoe on lead to the injury and then work your way through that injury so that you can now wear the new shoe Mm -hmm. like that's essentially what the ad says i'd rather do that i'd rather wear the shoe that i've been wearing since i mean essentially I'm in the same shoe that I've been in since I was like 20. Yeah. I'm just on like the updated model of it. Mm-hmm. I, I know my shoe. I like my shoe and I've tried other shoes over the year. I always come back to this shoe. Exactly. So that's kind of the importance of heel drop there. You know, you can decide what you want to do um, as far as it goes, but just understand if you are going to make a major change when it comes to heel drop and a lot of this information you can get on manufacturers websites, you know, so um, there is a great, website called um, Running Shoe Warehouse that get, will give you a lot of information on shoes. So you can go there and look up your shoe and it will tell you, you know, the stack height of the heel, the stack height of the toe. And all you have to do is subtract there to find what the difference is in the heel drop. It might even have heel drop as a, a separate um, category. But basically know where you are currently in your shoe. And then if you want to change shoes, make sure you know where you're going to so that you know how to transition it. So um, transitioning 
again, is a gradual process. It might look like, you know, going out and on your five mile run, you're not going to do all five miles in your brand new shoes. Maybe you do four miles in your old shoes and one mile in your new shoes. And then you, you know, make it two miles in your new shoes. Like you gradually increase the amount of time that you're spending in those lower drop shoes. Sure. I mean, there's lots of ways you can put it in. You can just put it in like one run a week. And I think it depends on like your overall volume also. Like if I decided I wanted to try working in a lower drop shoe, I'd probably just put it into like a couple of speed runs during the week mm-hmm. and do the rest of my runs in my normal shoes. And it would just kind of gradually transition me over towards less or at least yeah. being able to more comfortably wear both. Right. So that's what we want to talk about as far as heel drop goes. Now let's move on to cushioning. Oh, so many runners love a soft shoe. Like I want to go I out like there. I like a soft shoe. You do. You, and, and Nike has done a great job of with your, your Pegasus of putting a nice big fat blob of foam underneath the heel so that it, it feels comfortable when you land. And I mentioned this one earlier of everybody likes a soft shoe, but no one wants to run in a super heavy shoe. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I definitely have sold shoes. I vividly remember the man that walked in with a food scale. Like he walked into the shoe store, sat down, and then took out of his bag a shoe scale and asked for a variety of shoes and carefully took all of them out and weighed them on his scale. <laughs> oh my goodness. Like he had the catalog with him of like all the shoes and how much they were supposed to weigh, but he didn't trust anything. He, <clears throat> he had his own scale and he was going to weigh the well, shoes. Well, and those, the catalogs are also based on like a standard size, which might be different from his size. Right. So he, he, and. <laughs> He was, he was just going to weigh them all. It was the funniest <laughs> thing I've hilarious. seen. But the he just is, wanted the latest shoe? He wanted the latest shoe. Yeah. But the latest shoe is not necessarily going to equate to the best shoe. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember when I was in high school, my racing shoe was heavier than some of my teammates. But my racing shoe also had a tiny bit of stability built into it. So I felt much better in that shoe than a lighter shoe. So even though it was a, a, I don't know, ounce and a half heavier, that actually didn't matter to me. I was getting better benefits with the heavier shoe because my leg wasn't killing me by the end of it. Yeah. The cool thing now is that like cushioning the, the technology in foam has just... I mean, it, it's so superior to what it was 20, 30 years ago. So with this newer foam technology, basically the foam does not weigh as much. So you can still have a lot of cushioning in a shoe and the shoe still weighs the same as it used to or even less in a lot of circumstances. Right, substantially less than it used to even though it now has this massive amount of foam underneath it. And why does it have all of the foam underneath it? Because they've designed the foam that it actually springs back better than previous foam. So it's essentially like landing on springs. But if you picture like the old cartoon of like, I don't know, Wiley Coyote running with like the springs underneath his shoes, he always looked super awkward in those. They've figured out how to design the foam so that when you take off, it doesn't just spring back randomly on your legs. It springs back in the exact right spot that encourages an appropriate like lift of your leg mm-hmm. and drive through the next. It's phenomenal. The yeah. advances of combining like the actual like technology of the foam itself and how the body moves and trying to incorporate these things together. It's amazing. And so now you've got like the shoe governing body. That's like, you're only allowed to have 40 millimeters of foam underneath you in order for it to be a world record. It's crazy how the the world has evolved of shoving so much foam underneath. Cause if you go back 15 years, elites were racing with basically nothing underneath them to try and get the latest shoe possible. And now if you look at any, you know, high level race, 
all of the elite competition out there has the fattest foam underneath the bottom of them as as legally allowed by the uh, governing body. Yeah, and honestly, I think that this is one of the reasons that we are seeing such elite performances in older athletes, right? Because this super foam technology is actually doing what our Achilles is supposed to do. And as we get older, we lose springiness in our Achilles, right? This is just one of the natural things that happens. The the springiness, we should all, in our tendons, okay, the way that our tendons are created, specifically the Achilles, they are, we want to think of them as like a spring so that when we take a step, we compress that spring. And then when we start to move forward, that spring uncoils and kind of pushes us and propels us forward. That is how our tendons, specifically our Achilles tendon should work. And so basically these shoe companies are trying to mimic that exact same model with their foam and even carbon plating, which I know we're going to get into in a little bit here, is that they're kind of taking a lot of the work off of the calf in Achilles. And so I honestly think that this is why we are still seeing so many world records and, you know, athletes into their 30s or even 40s still being able to run at the level that they currently are running on road races which yeah. should have huge impact and you're just not getting the same return in in older athletes it's it's not ageist it literally is science that the achilles is not going to spring back mm-hmm. as much but it will if you get the boost from the shoots and i'm wondering you know this is just kind of a thought that came to me which we'll have to kind of see in you know 10 to 20 years here like is it hurting the younger athletes to run in these kinds of shoes, right? I don't know, like, because if the shoe's doing the work for you, you're not getting the same level of, like, strength and stress on the calf and the Achilles. Are you still building the same amount of strength? So this is going to be the pendulum swinging back and forth of, well, you can't have all of this in here, or you can race in that, but then you would want to train without any of that so that you make sure that you strengthen all of the muscles. And so then when you go to racing, it's like uh, training at altitude so that you can adjust your body to be able to do all these things without as much oxygen in the air and then racing at sea level it's training an issue that doesn't have all of the technology and then racing in as crazy of a thing as possible which leads all the way to carbon plating which is the newest latest greatest super shoe technology essentially the super shoe the super shoe technology it's phenomenal okay so here's the idea And it's also the benefit of having um, 40 millimeters of foam underneath it because you can put an even bigger carbon plate if you have enough foam to hide the plate inside of. Okay, so you don't feel it. Right. So the design of the shoe is essentially the best way I've I've read to explain this is it's a teeter-totter inside of your shoe. So you land on one side of it, and as it rolls toward, as you you pronate and you roll towards your toe, it then springs the backside up. So you can picture essentially a teeter-totter on your arch. You land on the heel, it rolls forward, and as you roll over the like um, pendulum, the fulcrum, fulcrum. That's the word I was searching Come for on, in the middle. Teacher, it's been two years since I taught a physics class. <laughs> I've got all the geometry shapes right now. As you go over the fulcrum in the middle and you get to the toes, it literally shoots the heel back off the ground. So the studies, the reason why back in 2016, this was called the Vaporfly 4% is among the elite athletes that they were testing it on, it caused a 4% improvement in running economy, which is translated to the world records over the past like four-ish years since these things have come out. On the male side, 2% reduction in world records from 5K to marathon, just across the board. Yeah. 
it's and it's not just like the record if you look at like the top 50 times they're just they're all dropping across the board women's side is getting even greater benefit i'm not quite sure why but the women are demonstrating like 2.8 percent improvement in the world record across the board it's crazy the times and there are a lot of people that are like ah so the shoes are ruining the sport but the same thing happened 50 years ago when cinder tracks turned into rubber tracks mm-hmm. so sure it's just another advancement in technology yeah and like i said i i really think that it's one of those advancements that's that are allowing older runners to keep running at that same elite level you know and not see that same performance drop off as they have in years past yeah no i definitely agree with that one i mean the the ability to race in those and get the return from the shoe itself and then less wear and tear on your body because your Achilles are not having to do as much work because mm-hmm. the shoe is taking up some of that slack there. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that's one of the reasons and don't get me wrong. She's a phenomenal athlete, but Flanagan being able to double marathons on back-to-back days and hit around 240 for both of them. Yeah. Like part of that was because she did the entire process in super shoes. I don't know if she could have gone 240 marathon on back-to-back days. Hard to say, you know, because, <laughs> and, and we'll never know, right? Because no. like you said, she is a phenomenal athlete. We are not taking anything away. No, she's but awesome. hey, if you, like, if you have things that are going to help make your recovery easier and decrease the level of strain on your body, it's the smart thing to do, right? Like, yep. if, if that's your goal, like, her goal was so huge, like, you got to do whatever you can to keep that body in tip-top shape. This is not like a knock against her whatsoever we love her no but you make a very good point of is this actually hurting athletes that you've got this thing that's going to help you run just a little bit easier Mm -hmm. are you actually overcompensating too much it kind of goes in the idea of you know after a workout do you immediately want to jump into an ice bath and reduce all of your inflammation not necessarily some of that inflammation is actually helping your body say oh i was not strong enough to do that workout i want to come back stronger so by putting yourself in a position where your achilles your calves are like oh we need to be able to to tighten the spring up to get a little bit stronger so that we can go a little bit faster for a little bit longer then being able to put yourself into a race environment where you use everything to your advantage. I mean, I think it's just kicking the can in some ways too, right? Like it's just kind of moving the bar down the road a little bit. Like, yeah, you're going to be able to get a little bit faster or do this, but then eventually you're going to, it's going to be, you're going to need the next thing. It's still going to come back to like your strength and your body's ability to be resilient. You know, that's definitely still going to come and be a very important part of the equation. So knowing all of this information, information what the heck do we do with it all right so let's number try. one you download our free shoe guide that's a good point this is what we should do okay um we actually have a, a shoe guide that we have made that helps explain all of these in a very you know easy to understand way we created a video to go along with it okay that actually will walk you through the process of understanding how to find your perfect running shoe and you can find that over at the website realliferunners.com forward slash shoes so that's step one go get our shoe guide it's free yeah, that's that's really, I mean, that's a great starting point. Yeah. Then probably find a specialty running store that's going to help you. Mm-hmm. Um, it, not just because they're knowledgeable, but also they probably have a wide variety of shoes and you can try them on as opposed mm-hmm. to searching the internet and being like, uh, I hope this is the answer. I'll order it and see how it goes. Mm-hmm. You go to the specialty shoe store, they're going to have a bunch of shoes you're going to be able to try them on and run around in them. So that's super helpful also. Yeah. The first thing you want to make sure you understand is what category of stability you need. You know, do you need a neutral shoe? Do you need a a stability shoe? And you can 
probably get that information from a specialty running store if you have a good person helping you that has a lot of experience with this. Um, if not, then I would say go see a physical therapist, have a gait analysis done. Make sure that this person is watching you run though. Don't just watch them walk. Okay. There's a lot of people that tell you like there's this wet foot test you can do where you like, you know, oh, go the wet foot test. <laughs> you can like just stand like, you know, there's like a Dr. Scholl's display in CVS that you can go to and you can just stand on the plate and it tells you if you need an insert or how much pronation you have. No, you have to have someone watch you or film you running because I knew an athlete who had the flattest feet I have ever seen in my life. Her feet were like pancakes, but yet when she ran, she ran in a neutral foot pattern. Okay. Like it was the craziest thing. So standing does not always translate to walking and walking does not always translate to running. Okay. You have to have someone actually watch you run so that they can watch the way that your foot is actually hitting the ground. Right. So then really, once you've taken care of your stability needs, a lot of the rest is personal preference. And a lot of what we've gone through on, on this episode is okay, I want a shoe that feels a little bit more like this, that feels a little bit more like that. Hopefully we've kind of clarified that you know, if you reduce the amount of foam, you're going to be able to feel the ground more. Maybe that's what you want. Maybe you want the sensation of feeling on clouds, increase the stack height underneath you, taking the pressure off your knees, taking the pressure off your Achilles by changing the heel drop. These are all ways to sort of fine tune. None of them are guaranteed to be exactly the the perfect shoe for you, but it'll help also sort of help guide you towards the right shoe. Then you also have to go from one brand to the next because all the brands fit slightly different. Sure, they're all generally designed on the shape of a foot, but where they decide to put overlays and how they lace the shoe, it's all slightly different from one brand to the next. And then from um, men's shoes to women's shoes, like do they have like a separate uh, design for women's shoes because some companies do and some companies just take the design for the man's shoe and make it a, a skinnier foot which is not actually the major difference between men's and women's feet yeah we didn't really talk about toe box width today um, and that's another th- important thing that you want to think about is like a lot of times running shoes are constructed where they're mo- much more narrow at the toe than they are at the heel be you know watch out for that make sure you feel how that feels on your toes a lot of times people will get like toe pain or nerve pain like in their fourth or fifth toes because of that um you want the wider toe box is really helpful again to help your foot move in that more natural pattern that's really what you want you want to find a shoe that's going to allow your foot to move in a more natural pattern so that you can feel good when you're running All right. So over years of selling running shoes from one side of the country to the other, one of the things that I've really learned and taken away is that the best shoe, the quote unquote best shoe, most expensive, flashiest, the one that the Olympian is wearing, whatever it is, is not necessarily going to help you if it doesn't feel comfortable on your foot. Yeah, that's a really good takeaway. No matter what shoe you're in, make sure it feels good on your foot. That's a really good rule of thumb. If it feels good, it's probably a good shoe for you. All right, you guys, as always, thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you head over to the website, realliferunners.com forward slash shoes with an S, S-H-O-E-S, to get that 
free running shoe guide to help you find your perfect running shoes. We'll help you assess your current running shoes, see if they are the right ones for you. And then if you're having like little aches and pains, we take you like through this whole flow chart and answer those questions so that you can start to play around with, okay, like I know I need a stability shoe. I know that I have a stability shoe, but my I'm still having some achiness in my knees or I'm still having some achiness here. What should I do? You know, should I change the cushioning? Should I change the heel drop? Should I do this? All of that we go through in the shoe guide. So go get that shoe guide, realliferunners.com forward slash shoes, and then come find us on Instagram at realliferunners. Let us know what you thought about that shoe guide. And if you still have any questions after getting that shoe guide, come over to Instagram and ask me, shoot me a DM at real life runners. I'm happy to answer any questions that you have about running shoes or about training or, you know, how you can improve anything like that. Come say hello on Instagram again at real life runners. And as always, thank you so much for joining us today on this episode of the real life runners podcast, episode number 236. Now get out there and run your life.